Hi there, and welcome to episode 30 of Silva Screeners. Big thank you to everyone who at any point has taken time out of your day to listen to my ramblings. And thanks for hitting that play or download button this time around as we keep looking at and appreciating the artistic value of the motion picture. In today's show, we're going to go back to 1946 to take a look at the legacy of what is, in my own personal opinion, one of the greatest motion pictures ever made. At least one of the greatest American motion pictures I've ever seen. 1946's Best Picture Academy Award winner, The Best Years of Our Lives. It's celebrating its 75th anniversary, so you probably know what I'm about to say to that one, if you've heard this show before. And especially if you haven't seen The Best Years of Our Lives, then that's right. As always, I'm putting out there Lauren Bacall's thought-provoking comment, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. In addition to November of this year, marking the 75th anniversary of the film's New York City premiere, Veterans Day slash Armistice Day is this week, so all of those factors put together led to the selection of Best Years for this week's episode an eight-time Academy Award-winning film. Best Picture, Best Director for William Wyler, Best Leading Actor for Frederick Match, Best Screenplay for Robert Sherwood, Best Editing, Best Musical Score, and for the first and only time in Oscar history, and I'll tell you more about this, two awards to an actor for the same performance. Best Supporting Actor to Harold Russell, and a Special Recognition Award for, quote, bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans, end quote. It was also nominated for Best Sound, but that one went to the Jolson story, a pretty much a largely forgotten film that was a fictionalized biopic of Al Jolson. He was the first voice to be heard in a motion picture at the end of the silent movie era. But anyway, I would like to offer a little bit about my personal connection to Best Years of Our Lives. I first saw this movie in college, in the very first film studies course that I ever took, Cinematic Eye, The History of Film with Professor Hoffman. It was, by far, one of the best courses that I took my entire time in college. I'm watching it on this rectangular-shaped hunk of molded plastic called a VHS tape, if you remember those vintage antiques from the late 20th century. I loved the idea, at the time that I enrolled in this course, of seeing movies from different generations and different countries from around the world. Looking back now at what Professor Hoffman used throughout the semester, I do have to say, still now, Best Years is in the upper echelon of what was on the syllabus, as far as I'm concerned. I would also have to put up there the Italian neorealist classic Bicycle Thieves, that was another fantastic one, and the French new wave icon The 400 Blows. One of my roommates was in this class with me, and we just completely ate besties up. At one point, about a month or two later, I remember asking my grandmother, who was a huge movie person, if either she or my grandfather remembered it. He was a marine stationed out of the Pacific in World War II. He was not much of a movie person but he would watch stuff with her to keep her company, so long story short, next time I saw them, I took out this VHS thingamajig, threw it into their VCR, and we made like it was 1946. Not even halfway through the opening credits, there she was, sitting next to me, tearing up, giving a little shiver, and she commented on all of the years that had passed since she last saw it. Her brother, my great-uncle, was also a Marine in World War II, so you might say that after spending, what, 50 years? It was the mid-90s? Trying to leave those memories in the past, just the opening credits of this one movie alone made her look in the rearview mirror and see just how close behind them everything was. That, to me, is the power of any form of art, whether it's a movie or music or photography or whatever. My guess is that it's similar to millions of other people around the globe who went through wartime and dealt with the anxiety and all of the, all of the emotional factors that go along with it. So that was more or less my initial experience with Best Years. I've seen it many, many times since, and I even recommended it to my wife a few years later. She wasn't my wife at the time. She was a senior in college, and she was taking a film class, and she had to write a paper on a film that depicts a troubled family dynamic, I think it was. At any rate, 
let's begin with the usual spoiler-free plot setup of the focus of today's show, and then you'll get the spoiler alert for a spoiler-filled list of top 10 behind-the-scenes facts. We'll close out with the trivia for the final segment, so let's do it. It's July 1944, the war years, two months after Normandy, and about a year before the war reaches an end. So around the globe, there's anxiety, there's heartache, there's anguish, there's hope, there's patriotism, there's ignorance, there's camaraderie, and and probably some considerable malaise as well. Hollywood studio mogul Samuel Goldwyn, he's the G of MGM Studios, reads an article in Time magazine called The Way Home. The reporter who wrote The Way Home accompanied about 370 members of the 1st Marine Division, all of them coming home from the Pacific Arena. They board a train in San Diego, California. The train heads east to drop them off at different spots going cross-country from west to east. They all had 30-day furloughs after months of fighting in places like Guadalcanal. Written along the sides of the train in shock were the words, The Home Again Special. The train empties out little by little as it makes its way across the country until a small handful of them are left when it pulls into Manhattan. By the way, the average age was 21 years old. According to the book Five Came Back by Mark Harris, one Marine told the reporter, quote, My stomach's tied in knots. I'm a little worried about how I'll look to them, about how much I've changed, end quote. Now Goldwyn read this and then turned to war correspondent McKinley Cantor and hired him to write a treatment for a potential film. Back to Mark Harris's book. He writes that Goldwyn told Cantor, quote, Every family in America is part of the story. When they come home, what do they find? They don't remember their wives. They've never seen their babies. Some are wounded. They have to readjust, end quote. What Cantor ended up writing was a novel-length poem in blank verse, and he gave it the title, Glory for Me. Glory for Me is the story of three returning veterans, one named Al, who's middle-aged and he feels alienated from his family, another one named Fred, who is kind of jaded and cynical, disillusioned, he's haunted by his memories of what he saw in the war, and then there's Homer, a young guy who suffered some brain damage. Glory for Me is very grim, it got a lot of content that would never have seen the light of day on the big screen in the 1940s. For example, Fred sleeps around with a lot of women while he's away at war, Middle-aged family man Al, he's tortured by his memories of seeing child prostitutes around the world. Homer, at one point in the story, considers taking his own life. So, as you can probably guess, Goldwyn read it, liked it for himself personally, but he knew that there was no movie there. Not with the way the senses were at the time. So, enter Robert Sherwood, who eventually wrote the screenplay that would be a better match for the kinds of movies that were allowed at the time. After director John Ford declined... Goldwyn offered the directing gig to William Wyler, and William Wyler had two Oscars at that point for directing and co-producing 1942's Mrs. Miniver, which is another World War II-themed drama. That one's set in England. He hadn't made a feature film since that one because he was overseas shooting documentaries for the Army Air Corps. So, Best Years of Our Lives, that was to be his return to the screen after being away for a few years. As for writer Robert Sherwood, he was a tough sell. He hemmed and hawed for a while about signing on to write the screenplay. For one thing, he found Glory For Me, the blank verse poem, to be offensive. And according to Mark Harris's book, Five Came Back, same book, Sherwood didn't like, quote, the assertion that an ugly divide had opened up between damaged soldiers and an uncaring home front. He complained about the criticisms of civilians in the book, 
and disagreed with the idea that all returning soldiers were maladjusted, end quote. It's probably worth mentioning that Sherwood had just spent the past few years working in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration, and back to Mark Harris again, <laughs> quote, trying to shape public opinion. And he could not imagine writing a movie that suggested that the country, having united for war, was now about to mishandle its aftermath, end quote. But Sherwood did end up writing the screenplay in the end, and he capped the Oscar for it, so there you go. William Wyler saw things a little bit differently from Sherwood, which you can see in the way that he staged a lot of the pivotal scenes in the film. Wyler really identified with the character Al, the family man. He's played by Frederick Match, who missed out on his son's and his daughter's formative years. He comes back home to two teenagers he barely knows. And Wyler was quoted as saying, quote, no man can walk right into the house after two or three years and pick up his life as before, end quote. There is what I think a really well-written scene where his son is talking to him about what he learned at school, about what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He tells his father that his teacher, he tells his father that his teacher had some misgivings about the ethics of it and that he does as well. And Al's reaction to his son's expressed disapproval gives best actor winner Frederick Match a great scene to work with here. As for the bitter character of Fred, Wyla put a little of his own experiences into his storyline. In real life, Wyla took a swing at an anti-Semite while in service and was nearly court-martialed. In the movie, Fred has one or two outbursts himself, not necessarily related to anti-Semitism, but violent outbursts enough. But arguably, the biggest change from the poem, Glory for Me, is in the character of Homer. In the poem, I mentioned he suffers from brain damage. He has impaired speech. His face contorts uncontrollably. Wyla preferred to stay away from that, citing concerns that it would not be, quote, actable, end quote. So Homer's condition changed from brain damage to losing his hands. And that is where a 30-year-old native of Nova Scotia and later Cambridge, Mass., named Harold Russell comes in. Harold Russell was in the Navy in real life. On D-Day, June 6, 1944, his hands were blown off in a training accident. According to Russell himself in Mark Harris's book, Five Came Back, in case you haven't figured it out by now, this is a great one to read. Highly recommend it. Quote, I got my injury on D-Day all right, but it was in North Carolina when a half a pound of TNT exploded ahead of schedule. I didn't have a purple hat. I didn't have an overseas ribbon. All I had was no hands. End quote. The Navy fitted him with prosthetic lower arms and hooks. He was the focus of a 20-22-minute-long military documentary called Diary of a Sergeant. You can find it on YouTube. They reenact him being wheeled into surgery, the two months of rehab that followed, the way that they trained him and the use of the hooks. The documentary was made pretty much to spotlight the quality of care given to injured veterans. It never refers to him by name, and he never says a word. It's believed that's because his New England accent may have been thought of as not approachable, not palatable enough for mainstream audiences. The first-person narration, first narration is provided by a deep-voiced actor named Alfred Drake. So William Wyler saw a diary of a sergeant, and he was captivated. He looked Harold Russell up. He looked him up. Harold Russell was living in Boston, working at a local YMCA, taking classes at Boston University. Wyla flew him out to Hollywood, brought him out to lunch at the famous Brown Derby restaurant, where all the big stars of the day would go, and for all intents and purposes, told him that, yeah, maybe he has no acting experience, but the role was his, if he wanted it. 
So let's head over to the spoiler-free plot setup of Best Years of Our Lives to see how all of this came together. After the opening credits wrap up, the first shot we see is a high angle of the interior of an airport terminal. An American soldier named Fred Derry, played by Dana Andrews, makes his way over to the counter to try to get a plane ticket to go home, but he's told that nothing is available until the 19th. Fred answers he can't wait that long, he just got back from overseas. The lady at the desk says, I'm sorry sir, but there's a long waiting list. We're not even 30 seconds in, and already there's a little bit of social commentary when a businessman then walks up and says his secretary made reservations, and the lady at the counter says, oh yes, a porter brings his luggage, and Fred is pretty much ignored until the lady turns to him and suggests that he try the ATC. He perks up at the suggestion and goes out. At that moment, she looks back at Mr. CEO, and she says, oh sir, you have 16 pounds of excess baggage, and he casually replies, oh that's alright, how much is it? So Fred is now outside and heading out to the ATC, that's where he meets a young Navy sailor named Homer Parrish, played by Harold Russell. They find out that they're from the same hometown, Boone City, which was modeled for the film apparently after Cincinnati. They're able to get a ride with the B-17. It's going to make a lot of stops along the way, but they can get home by the next afternoon, so they take it. Fred signs first, and then it's Homer's turn. And it's at this moment that Homer reveals that he has no hands. He's got the prosthetic lower arms with a, with a harness and hooks attached. Fred and the ATC guy look at each other uncomfortably, the ATC guy offers to sign for Homer. Homer's response is, it's good-natured, but it's also a little defensive. He says, what's the matter, you think I can't spell my own name? And he goes on to sign the paper perfectly using the hooks. He picks up his own bags, and he and Fred are off. They board the B-17. They meet another returning soldier, Al Stevenson, played by Frederick Match. He's already in the aircraft. Introductions all around, the three settle in for the trip. Turns out that Al, too, comes from Boone City, and they take off. There's some expository dialogue where the three of them talk about their lives back home, their loved ones, that kind of thing. Homer reveals how he lost his hands and says that he's gone home to his parents and his kid's sister and his girlfriend Wilma, who lives next door. Fred and Al ask if they know about his hands, and he says yeah, but they haven't seen him yet. He's nervous about what Wilma's reaction's going to be, and Al says supportively, I'll bet Wilma's a swell girl. Later on during the flight, Homer falls asleep. That leaves Fred and Al talking quietly between themselves, one of the things they talk about, their concerns for Homer. And that's when Al says, I hope Wilma's a swell girl, as the scene fades out. The mood lightens, they're flying over Boone City the next day, Homer is excitedly pointing out his old high school where he played football, they fly over a junkyard at one point, all of these different aircrafts, they're going to be demolished and junked for scrap metal. Fred, who was in the Air Corps, he comments on how they could have used those planes back in 43. Then they share a cab that brings them home one by one. There's a brief montage of all of these local places, a hot dog stand, the fire station, a Woolworths department store, a used car dealership. It's a pretty decent time capsule of the image of 1940s Americana that you see all the time in things like Norman Rockwell paintings and things like that. So the three of them have bonded, they've exchanged contact info, they've agreed to meet up for drinks soon. Homer is the first one to be dropped off, and his kid sister, she's probably about maybe nine or ten, she's the first one to see him. She runs out of the house, she begins crying and excitedly calling out to her parents. She runs next door onto the front yard to call out for Wilma that home is home, home is home, and then she rushes into his arms. And I don't know if it was the young actress caught up in the moment or if it was William Wyler's direction, but just as she runs into his arms, she lets out this little emotional gasp of, oh, as she collapses into him. I don't care that this is a black and white film. I don't care that it's 75 years old. I don't care how much filmmaking styles may have evolved over the years, 
but I good-naturedly challenge anyone listening right now not to feel some kind of emotional reaction to that small gasp that she lets out. It's a subtle moment, and at the risk of sounding melodramatic, it's a beautiful one. There's a really powerful scene later in the film between him and this little girl, but I won't say anything about it. I'll just say look for it. Anyway, the parents then come running out the door. They're weeping and hugging him and crying. Before a more theatrical moment, when Wilma rushes out her front door, she looks over. She and Homer see each other across the two front lawns. There's a striking close-up of the pure, unadulterated joy on her face. As she grins, she slowly makes her way over to him. She throws her arms around his neck pretty awkwardly, I thought. It was strange. Her arms are going around his neck, not around his back or around his waist. He stares straight ahead without hugging her back, while Fred and Al, they're watching from inside the cab, they react to this, to the fact that Homer's not responding to her. And so they just turn to the driver and say, go ahead. They drive off. Homer waves goodbye to the cab. He's raising his right arm in a salute. That gives his family and Wilma their first glimpse of the hooks. Back in the cab, Fred breaks the awkward silence by saying, you gotta hand it to the Navy. They sure trained him how to use those hooks. And Al replies, deadpan, staring straight ahead. They couldn't train him to put his arms around his girl. Al's the next one to be dropped off. He makes his way into the elevator of his apartment building. He rings his own doorbell, and when his teenage son greets him at the door, he shushes him and his daughter Peggy. Peggy is played by Oscar winner Teresa Wright. So when his wife calls out to the two kids, hey, who's at the door? There's a dramatic moment where the two of them, Al and his wife, they're standing at opposite ends of the hall. He slowly walks over to her for a big embrace. And after the initial shock wears off, he and his kids have their moment together. He hugs the daughter, Peggy, but not the son, which I assume is probably a generational thing. I don't know. That crap about real boys don't hug or whatever. But he hugs his daughter, Peggy, and he looks at both of them and he says, I don't recognize you. What's happened? Peggy grins as she answers, just a few years of normal growth. Don't you approve? And he goes, I don't know yet. Gotta have more time to get to know you. That's when they hear his wife on the phone in the next room canceling plans that she had that evening. And here's where we get another bit of social commentary. She's telling her friend on the phone that she won't be able to make it tonight, that Al is home earlier than expected. She then has to repeat, Al, my husband, he's home. Peggy and her father exchange a look at that. It is a moment loaded with meaning, and it's not the last of its kind in this movie either. And Fred's homecoming is the third and final one. He gets out of the cab in a more industrial area. The idea, I think, was to show that he comes from the quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks. He walks up to this shanty. Maybe it was a trailer. I'm not really sure. He greets his parents. They're happy to see him in their own way, but their enthusiasm is certainly not as visible as the previous two homes. He asks about his wife, Marie. They were only married for a couple of weeks when he left for the war. They awkwardly tell him that Marie's not living with them anymore, that she took an apartment downtown. This is news to him. He asks why nobody wrote to him to tell him about it. They said they didn't want to worry him, him being so far away and everything. He doesn't ask anything else. They don't volunteer anything else about why Marie herself didn't tell him. They tell him that Marie's working in a nightclub. They've been forwarding her all of his letters and allotment checks, and he gets the address and goes off to find her. I think this is a good point to stop with the story setup. Plot developments I haven't mentioned, how these three guys meet up after their initial homecomings, the problems as they readjust to family life. All of that I'm not going to touch until you get the spoiler alert for the behind-the-scenes fun facts. So now let me tell you, here's the spoiler alert. <laughs> Let's go behind-the-scenes now for the fun facts. Number 10. 
Myrna Loy plays Al's wife, Millie, and Teresa Wright, she bagged the Oscar for Mrs. Miniver back in 1942. She plays the daughter, Peggy. William Wyler wanted realism for this film, nothing glamorized, so he gave these two actresses modest stipends, as Mark Harris says in Five Came Back. Wyler told them to go to the local department store, buy clothes that they would wear in the movie straight off the rack. Now, for us non-golden age of Hollywood peasants, that's a way of life. But this was a big departure from the norm in Tinseltown when leading ladies were usually wearing all of these gowns and fancy house dresses, in the movies at least. I'm happy to say that both Myrna Loy and Teresa Wright were totally on board with this, happily agreed to de-glam for the movie, to wear less makeup and powder than actresses did at the time, even though they would both have a good number of close-ups. Number nine. Ever hear of the production code? <laughs> this was the censorship board that was in place long before there were film ratings. A set of rules and guidelines that were created to keep film content as clean and as moral and as upright and as decent and as respectable and, in the opinion of this podcaster, as unrealistic as possible. They were aghast at a scene that was subsequently eliminated where a very excited puppy urinates on the floor. They deemed it, quote, unacceptable vulgarity, end quote, because apparently dogs don't have bladders. They also insisted on Al and his wife having twin beds, because God knows spouses in the same bed was a sure way to go to hell in a handbasket. Can you tell how I feel about this? Number eight. Dana Andrews, who plays Fred Derry, he was dealing with alcoholism at the time of this production. One morning during the shoot, he had a particularly bad hangover. He showed up really just not in the zone for work. William Wyler was so agitated by this that he showed him what's what by making Andrews do about 25 takes of a scene where he's supposed to hit his head in the frame of a taxicab door while his character is drunk. Number seven. William Wyler, as I said, he was overseas during the war. He was an officer in the U.S. Army Air Corps. They wanted him to make propaganda films to contribute to the war effort, which he did. At one point, he was flying with his crew over Germany, shooting footage of an air battle to use in the documentary called The Memphis Bell, which was the name of a B-17 bomber. One of his crew in a separate plane was killed, and because of all of the noise outside his craft, Wyla went completely deaf in one ear and lost most of his hearing in the other. This was one of the reasons why he was so drawn to the character of Homer, who, of course, deals with a life-altering injury of his own. Number six. William Wyler would win his second Best Director Oscar for Best Years, and then eventually a third for 1959's Ben-Hur. He also directed two big actresses to Oscar wins, Olivia de Havilland for The Heiress with Montgomery Clift, and Audrey Hepburn for 1953's Roman Holiday, her leading lady debut with Gregory Peck. Wyler retired in 1970 for health reasons, which meant he had to hand over the directing reins at that time to somebody else for what would have been another passion project of his, 1970s Patton, starring George C. Scott. Number five. The Best Years of Our Lives was Wyla's first film after returning home from the service. His friend, colleague, and fellow World War II veteran Frank Capra, the director of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life, both returned to work around the same time, both of them dealing with mental scars from their experiences. They would good-naturedly send telegrams to each other in a show of support as each of them would get going on their own films. Best years for Wyla, wonderful life for Capra. Wyla sent Capra a telegram that said of their return to Hollywood, quote, last one in is a rotten egg, end quote. Number four. 
Best Years premiered in New York City in November 1946 in order to qualify for that year's Oscars. It's a Wonderful Life was originally slated for January 1947, but was pushed back to December of 46 instead, so the two movies played simultaneously. That left audiences with a choice of what they were more in the mood to engage in that holiday season. Wyler's dramatic realism or Capra's old-fashioned sentiment. Critics heaped praise on Best Years of Our Lives. The New York Times called it, quote, not only superlative entertainment, but food for quiet and humanizing thought, end quote. And the New York Times had this to say about It's a Wonderful Life, quote, quaint and sentimental, end quote. Variety chimed in with, quote, Capra had not taken the stride forward in filmmaking technique that many of his colleagues had, end quote. Regardless, both movies were nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, among other categories, of course, and on March 13, 1947, Besties walked away with eight Oscars, if you include Harold Russell's Special Recognition Award, and that included both Best Picture and Best Director. It was at that point that Besties was the second highest grossing movie in history. Gone with the Wind was the only one ahead of it in line. Number three. Actually, numbers three, two, and one all pertain to Harold Russell. So number three. Feeling apprehensive about playing a role in a Hollywood studio production where he was totally green to movie making, Russell secretly began taking acting lessons. Once William Wyler found out, he apparently blew up at Russell, yelling, quote, I didn't hire an actor. I hired a guy to play a role, end quote. He wanted the natural realism that he knew Russell was more than capable of delivering. Number two. You know, sometimes insecurity and ego inevitably do go hand in hand. Frederick Match, who plays Al, he has a scene where he and Homer, Harold Russell's character, they're in a bar and they're having a drink together. According to Mark Harris's Five Came Back, while filming the scene, Frederick Match apparently broke character to yell at Harold Russell, quote, When I say my lines, keep those goddamn hooks down. Don't lift that bottle. I want people listening to what I'm saying, not watching you drink beer. End quote. Both men would go on to win Academy Awards for their performances in this movie. Match for leading and Russell for supporting. And number one. Harold Russell, like I've said now a few times, he won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. When he was first nominated, the Academy figured that he didn't have a chance. The nomination itself was his award. One of the professionally trained actors who were his co-nominees, more likely to find his name in the envelope. That's what the Academy figured anyway. But the Academy didn't want him going home empty-handed, so what they decided to do was, during the ceremony, grant him a special recognition Oscar, which I've said already was inscribed with, quote, for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance, end quote. He accepted the award happily. Then, later on in that same ceremony, it was time to announce Best Supporting Actor winner. They opened the envelope, and wouldn't you know it, it was his name in the envelope for Best Supporting Actor. To this day, Harold Russell is the only person in Oscar history to have two awards for the same role, and he was not and never became a professional actor. His only other acting credits were roles in a 1980 movie called Inside Moves, a 1997 movie called Dogtown, and a few guest appearances on series TV like Trapper John M.D. in 1981 and China Beach in 1989. And that's really because of the advice of William Wyler. Harold Russell left Hollywood after his Oscar victory. He went back to school at the advice of William Wyler. Eventually, he got his business degree. In 1949, he wrote his autobiography called Victory in My Hands. He joined the Anti-Defamation League as a spokesperson. And according to his bio on Amazon.com, if you look up his book, 
He devoted his time to organizations that promoted racial, religious, ethnic, and disability status causes. And I love this. He would also joke that with his hooks, he could pick up anything except a Denichek. And now it's time for the final segment of today's show, the trivia. For the second time in the past three weeks, I opted not to do the usual weekly poll. I mean, what kind of poll question could I ask about a film like this? But the weekly poll will be back next time around. There was, though, a trivia question last time. In the last episode, Davey A. from the I'd Give That 10 Minutes podcast guested, we talked about 1989's Batman. There is a new Batman flick coming out in the spring called The Batman, starring Robert Pattinson. And the question was, what other franchise did he star in? This one about vampires. And the correct answer is... Twilight. Thankfully, refusing to fade into the Twilight, we have three return winners. There's Mary C., who is racking them up like you can't believe, which is so cool. Loving and appreciating your playing along, as always, Mary. Kudos are in order as well to Tommy G. from the podcast Rewatch, Relive, Repeat. He and his wife's most recent show looked at 1988's Beetlejuice, which was a great listen. Hoping to be collaborating again in the near future. We're still figuring out the timing. And then we got Stu from the Stu and Al pod, which recently released its 38th episode, if I'm not mistaken. They release their shows every two weeks. They bounce off each other like the seasoned pros they are. We have an upcoming collaboration on a few movies of the Coen brothers, so stay tuned for that, because that's coming your way soon. And if any other listeners have anything you'd like to contribute, any suggestions or requests for future episodes, thoughts on any given poll question or trivia, I'm all ears. It's always great to hear from listeners, and don't forget that trivia winners get personalized movie memes sent their way as well. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Thanks for listening to my ramblings. Before we wrap up, there's just one thing more, this episode's trivia question. And here it is. For better or worse, one of the most praised and revered World War II movies in more recent decades, 1998 Saving Private Ryan. And in one of the biggest upsets in recent Oscar history, it did not get Best Picture that year at the Oscars. What smaller romantic comedy slash drama did? So, the Best Picture winner of 1998 that surprised everyone, including, I would imagine, a lot of its own cast and crew. And like I always say, it doesn't matter when you send your answers in. Whenever you're catching this episode, just go ahead, submit your response for a personalized meme and a shout-out in the following episode. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share in Best Years of Our Lives, any of the cast or crew involved, memories of your own that you want to share about the movie or others like it, just hit me up on my socials. FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza1974 on Instagram, or you can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. And that does it for episode 30. Thank you for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and if you could take a second to give this show a rating on Apple, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, please feel free to do so to help with the algorithms, get more people to discover the show. And if you feel compelled to, please feel free to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners. I would be grateful for any honest feedback. So thanks again. My name is Frank. I'll be seeing you in the next episode. Until next time, keep on screening, and I leave you with a brief audio clip of the scene that gets me no matter how many times I see it. Homer's warm welcome from his kid sister. Thank you, veterans, and your loved ones.